Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. I was getting to this point of, you know, what's next and not really having a clear answer and simultaneously feeling like I couldn't get that clarity inside of an organization, that I needed a little space from the day-to-day management and leadership and work that I was doing to be able to identify, you know, where do I want to have impact and what do I really want to focus on? Meet Lauren Collins Scott. Lauren and I sat down right at the start of her first career sabbatical in which she is creating necessary space to reflect and find her next. In today's episode, Lauren not only shares her career journey, but also sprinkles in so much wisdom, including how design thinking taught her skills to navigate ambiguity, building support systems around you to be effective in your role, speaking up when it matters, and how working as an expatriate in London deepened her empathy to the lived experience of others and made her acutely aware of the importance of creating a sense of belonging for everyone. Most recently, Lauren was the Global Chief Impact Officer for IDEO, and prior to that, she served as Chief of Staff in the CEO's office and Head of DEI, where during the global pandemic, she found herself not just stewarding collaboration across teams, but operating as the tip of the spear and navigating unprecedented challenges. Lauren is a fellow of the Aspen Institute and holds an MBA from Wake Forest University. Can't wait for you to meet this remarkable woman. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Lauren. Thank you for having me. You know, before these conversations start, I usually get a few minutes by myself with the guest and I can already feel my cheeks hurting from smiling (laughs) with joy and anticipation for our conversation. I'm so excited you're here. Oh, I love that. I appreciate that too. I I do feel like I'm going to get a good cheek workout in this conversation. (laughs) You know, I always think it's fun sometimes to say how this came to be because I get asked a lot how I find guests and I feel very blessed that I got the opportunity to see you present this past summer. You were speaking at a program that I coach at for entrepreneurs and it was one of those kind of gravitational pulls where I saw you on stage, I heard what you were saying and I wanted to know you deeper and I was so grateful when I reached out and you said yes. Yeah. And it was so nice meeting you then. I feel like that moment of coaching younger folks through their careers and through their passion periods is something that we both share. And I love that like afterwards, when I came around to your table, you were like encouraging all the students to like ask me questions and like, you know, give their contact information. I was like, okay, this this is a hundred percent like me in another role, you know? Oh my gosh. Well, that's amazing. Well, so you're at a really I think exciting time in your journey. Most recently, you were the global chief impact officer for IDEO. And now you are in the midst of a career sabbatical. And I would love for you to, if anyone's not familiar with IDEO, maybe you can kind of help give a quick headline of like who they are and what they do. And then I'd love to, I'm a huge advocate and fan of career sabbaticals. Would love to maybe hear how you decided to take one. So IDEO is a global design firm originally based out of Palo Alto, California, although now they're a little bit more based in San Francisco, nearby neighbor. And the company is a little over 40 years old and is really known and associated with human-centered design, which is really this practice of solving problems through creativity with people at the center of them. So for example, if you think about something 
I'll try to think about a couple examples of projects that IDEO is really known for. In LA County, they redesigned the voting machines. LA County in California really wanted to make sure that every single voter, you know, had an equal opportunity to vote, if you will. And so the way that IDEA went about that was to do a lot of external research and meet with a lot of voters and see people across, you know, the diverse spectrum to see what their needs are and interview them, put them in different stations and prototyping is a core part of the way that IDEA works. So they mocked up a lot of different ways that they could you know, revolutionize voting machines and they put them in, in front of different types of voters that had different types of needs. And I say different types of needs, like there might be hearing impairment, you know, there might be folks that are in wheelchairs, there might be folks that English isn't their first language. And so how do you take all those considerations into play to actually solve for that problem? And when you design that way, and if you design something for the people, frankly, who it might be the hardest for them, if you will, to do this task, then by default, you kind of design something that works for everyone. So IDEO is known for bringing people and creativity to the center of problems and therefore creating solutions that, you know, you have a lot more confidence that they'll work because you had people at the center of all of your questions and all of your design. In terms of my transition out and sabbatical, which I'm so excited about and so energized by now officially like four weeks into it, although I'll be honest, it was, <laughs> it's a little hard to like rip the bandaid off, you know? So it's been, it's been like an off ramp to a sabbatical, if you will. I feel like I spent actually the first four weeks having a bunch of like networking calls and, you know, meeting with a bunch of, you know, previous clients and relationships, just catching up with people. Nonetheless, your question was, you know, how did I make the decision to take yeah. this career break and take this sabbatical? I think that my career has been so broad and my experience has been so varied. And I was getting to this point of, you know, what's next and not really having a clear answer and simultaneously feeling like I couldn't get that clarity inside of an organization, that I needed a little space from the day-to-day management and leadership and work that I was doing to be able to identify, you know, where do I want to have impact and what do I really want to focus on? You know, I've had a career as a product developer, as a designer, as a researcher, you know, community organizer, as an executive and several other things. And the chief of staff experience really got to touch all different pieces of the organization. Frankly, just made that even more confusing. It's like, where do I land? And I just wanted to take, <laughs> I just wanted to take a step back and reflect on all that I had accomplished, mm. all that I had learned, and more so than anything, like ask myself, what do I want to learn next? Mm. You know, I really find working in career as an excuse for like applied education. Where is my curiosity pulling me to? And then as I've as I've gotten more senior in my career, if you will. I've had an even greater desire or urge to ensure that the work I'm doing is having real impact, you know, beyond the bottom line for an organization. And I wanted to take a step back to focus that more. I'm just sitting here. I know people can't see me. I mean, like emphatically nodding my head. Yes. I have so many questions. I can't wait to ask you because I think that's so beautiful and that knowing that you are looking for something and that you in the current environment and the way that it's set up, that this is not conducive to being able to find the the answers and coming up with another solution to allow yourself to focus time and energy there. I think that's so powerful. And yet that can be so scary to do because it feels risky. You know, I think we're still breaking that habit of the best time to find a job is when you have a job, right? Like, oh my gosh. So when was there 
kind of that flickering that you started thinking about what was next and mm. like where, where was that where you started having that sense of where you were starting to look to, onto the horizon and the answer was eluding you you know, when I stepped into my most recent role at IDEO as a chief impact officer, I stepped into the role, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, excited to just really take on this portfolio of impact and expand upon from a lot of the equity, inclusion, diversity work I was doing to also more work around sustainability and climate and all these other projects that had been in the pipeline, but, you know, truly hadn't been resourced or prioritized and was very excited to do so. However, just the realities of the consulting industry right now is so challenging for organizations, mm -hmm. IDEO included. And it was challenging to be able to, frankly, accomplish what I hoped to accomplish, given where the organization was. And so one of the challenging things about doing impact work within an organization which totally makes sense is that it has to fit with where the organization is and what the organization can do. And so that started to become a bit misaligned with what I wanted to do and the impact that I knew I could have. It felt like it was being limited a bit by, you know, the capacity of the organization, just in terms of all of the other competing priorities that were very much equally justified. And so I realized that I just needed more space to be able to have that impact. And I think when you start digging into some of these problems and realize there are multiple organizations, you know, experiencing these similar challenges. And if you're only focusing on it in your organization, that's fine. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, but there could be opportunities to take a more matrix approach and impact, you know, just at a greater scale. And so I started to think about that and start to have those questions and started having conversations internally with, you know, our sister companies, if you will, around sustainability and around DE&I. And I think that actually <laughs> further encouraged me to be like, oh, I need to connect with more people. You know, I need to be mm. connecting with more people and working with more people. And how do I dot connect this? So it's making an even bigger impact. That's so amazing. Was there excitement upon the realization? Was there like, what? I'm curious, like when you started to realize that you're having this kind of view across a global landscape now, you're recognizing that these conversations are happening within organizations, but they are very consistent. And the, like, to your point, there's, there's a potentially different approach that could be taken than within one singular organization to drive impact. Was it excitement at the realization? Was it like, oh no, like, I'm very curious kind of when that moment, when it started to click in your mind, like what that was like, kind of what the emotions were mm. that were coming to the surface. Yeah. I think from like a sentiment standpoint, initial excitement, especially because I was engaged in external, you know, communities through work like the World Economic Forum or Fortune. Mm. And it was excitement going into those spaces with, you know, lots of other senior folks that were addressing similar challenges in their organizations. Yeah. And it was exciting to be in conversation with people who were doing the same work. And then I think at some point it probably turned into overwhelm because mm -hmm. I'm like, man, you know, obviously I know the organizations have been working on a lot of these issues for decades, but when you really get into it and start to like unpack those decades and unpack, frankly, the amount of progress that has been made in those decades, it can be quite overwhelming. And so trying to figure out, you know, how do you actually celebrate those small wins and acknowledge the progress mm -hmm. as progress 
versus what often happens is, you know, people either burn out or they give up, or again, another competing priority takes over, or people just transition out of organizations, it can make it very, very hard to actually even just acknowledge any progress was made. And oftentimes just turn into the cycle of doing the same thing, doing the, you know, we're going to take an inventory and see what we've done, see what's effective. Okay, let's start a new program, start that program. Okay. And then by the time that cycle is done, all right, let's take a survey, see how that went. And then let's, you know, take, let's look before and after at the impact. Oh, it's pretty marginal. Okay. Maybe not worth the investment. And then Mm -hmm. by that time, people have turned over, leadership has turned over, priorities has changed, and it starts the whole thing again. And that's part of the overwhelm. So I, I think initial excitement, then probably a little overwhelm. And then especially when I started thinking about, again, stepping outside of the organization to continue some of this work and or figure out where I wanted to focus it, particularly, obviously fear. And I spent a lot of time, it wasn't a crystal clear decision for me. I wasn't just like, I'd like to go on sabbatical. I mean, I'm sure we all say that throughout our careers multiple <laughs> times, but, you know, it sounds great, but it takes a lot of planning. And, you know, I'm really fortunate that I could, you know, depend on my husband to support me through the sabbatical and through the time off. You know, I didn't have to make the decision in isolation and had a thought partner that I'd been able to make and sustain the decision with. But it was it was definitely over a extended period of time and required a lot of planning and required, yeah, just a lot of reflection and still does, frankly, because I think when you start thinking about taking this break as excited as you might be as to what comes on the other side of it, the biggest piece is the ambiguity. You know, I think one of the things that I learned really well working at IDEA was how to sit in ambiguity. You know, it is the core root of the problems that we take on or that we took on for clients. It doesn't make it any more comfortable, but I think that you <laughs> you start to like learn the tools of how to deal with it and frankly, how to, how to even communicate to other people, how to sit in it with you. And so I'm grateful for that. Oh, that's fascinating. It's so interesting because it reminds me so much of when I talk with other people about the inner critic or, you know, the inner mm-hmm. imposter and that, you know, it doesn't go away. It's just the coping mechanisms and the skills to you know, shut the voice down to kind of rein it in before it takes Mm -hmm. control. That's so intriguing that how beautiful that you've developed this skill set of kind of sitting in ambiguity and learning how to navigate that and also inviting others to be peaceful in that too. Are there any things that you can share that, you know, perhaps are really helpful? Because I think there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, ambiguity can manifest in a lot of different forms. This is one example of like knowing where you are is no longer the future, but not knowing yet what what the future is going to be. So I'm curious what some of those things are that you use to help you, you know, kind of sit in the ambiguity. Probably the biggest one is to just collect more information Mm -hmm. and collect more information, knowing that you probably are not going to get to a resolution or a solution just as a result of collecting that information. So whether that is having conversations with other people, whether that is journaling your own thoughts, just to kind of frankly, like formulate what it is that you're thinking, which creates information, if you will, that gives you confidence along the way. It kind of just like knacks away at the ambiguity a little bit. And then the second piece of it is, you know, a form of prototype. And you can always gut check stuff just to eliminate. I don't know necessarily like where I'm going, 
but I might be able to figure out where I'm for sure not going sooner than later. And so I think it's, it, I think it's recognizing that ambiguity isn't, you know, a zero one wholesome kind of a thing. It's not, you know, it's not this or that it is kind of just this big mushy thing that might get actually information might make it mushier, but it'll also give you some clarity. And so for me, it really is just continuing to question, but being okay and that questioning and, and that curiosity, because naturally, you know, when we're sitting in ambiguity, you want clarity and you want like to close it down and you want to problem solve, especially if you're type A. Yes. But in reality, it's okay to like let things naturally, you know, reveal themselves. And so you can just be deeply curious within that ambiguity. And eventually it'll lead you to exactly where you're meant to be or exactly the solution that you're meant to arrive at. And you'll do that in a way that you feel really good and really confident about it. Yeah. I think about like when I hear people talking about surrender and so much is like, you know, I think we all know that we're not in control. (laughs) It doesn't stop us from trying to plan things. And the surrender does not mean inaction necessarily, but it does mean like the shift in mindset of like, I love the deeply curious and kind of taking Mm -hmm. a more exploratory mindset of, what am I to take from this experience? And I really love the calling out that sometimes it's just as valuable to know where you're not going or what you don't want as it is to have clarity on what it is that you do want, that those are both very valuable sets of insights that help inform how you move forward. And that's, oh, thank you for sharing that. That is so good. I'm so excited. Thank you for capturing it. I love the way that you reflect back and just like so quickly codify. It's refreshing. Well, thank you. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I went really deep, really fast. And I appreciate you just jumping in with me. And <laughs> let me let me back everyone up because you you gave us some breadcrumbs yeah. early on talking about just this really diverse background that you have and all these different roles that you've held from researcher to executive to designer and developer. And so I would love to maybe like, let's go way, way back in time. You're coming out of school. What's the vision, Lauren, of what it is that you see yourself doing coming out of school? I studied journalism in undergrad and, you know, spent four years thinking that I was going to be a journalist, whether I was writing for a newspaper or working at CNN, which I interned there. That was quite an experience, but I came out of school in 2009. And so, you know, really hard time to find a job. The economy wasn't in a great place. And it was, it was a very humbling time to actually decide maybe you should stay in school. And so Mm -hmm. I actually ended up immediately going to business school right after undergrad because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and or I wasn't extremely confident that journalism was the best path for me. So again, going back to that, knowing what you don't want to do, I mean, CNN is amazing, but I had an internship experience there. And once I really got into that practical journalist life, I was like, I don't know that this is for me. (laughs) And I was like, I think I need a little bit more time and just in the education space to see, Mm. you know, what else is out there? How else can I apply these skills? And so I went straight through business school, which is probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And honestly, wasn't deeply planned. It was decided senior year of college. But I went to Wake Forest down in North Carolina and had a really unique experience there 
And very quickly, I learned about something called consumer insights, which Mm. I hadn't heard of before. And so consumer insights or market research. Can I pause you for really quick? How did you, okay. So like a couple of immediate things, how did you pick Mm -hmm. Wake Forest and how did you decide that you were going to, because you ended up with a master's of arts and management. So uh, maybe, will you fill in that way for me really quick? (laughs) Yes, totally. So I was actually looking at both PhD programs and business school programs when I was graduating. Because again, just like given what was going on with the economy, I was like, oh, I might need to stay in school. I was getting job (laughs) offers. I'm I'm embarrassed to say how much I was being offered to go work full-time places at that time. And so I was, I was considering both like, okay, I'm going to go deep and deep, deep into research, or I'm going to go into business. And so Mm. um, I found out about the Wake Forest. They had a particular program. So Steve Ryman, who is the previous CEO of PepsiCo, had this vision essentially for wanting to bring more students who had liberal arts backgrounds into the business world. You know, after leading PepsiCo for however long, I think had seen a lot of the same and wanted to bring different skill sets into the business world to have, you know, these business leaders that were a bit more intuitive and leaning into softer skills a bit more and more so than anything, bringing creativity to business and innovation. And so he spearheaded and designed the scholarship that was really focused on this, you know, kind of, again, mix of liberal arts and business and combining those degrees very intentionally and designing a business school program for students of liberal arts backgrounds. And so, you know, I was coming from, again, journalism and a creative space. And I'm like, oh, this feels very accessible for me. This feels great. You know, I grew up in Georgia, was just in Florida. North Carolina is just the other direction. And so um, (laughs) that's how I ended up finding the program at Wake Forest and going there. Okay. So you go through, you get your master's. So now what's the vision? So the vision became very clear in business school because, you know, you have to do an internship in business school. And so my internship was in market research, which again, prior to going there, I really didn't even know that that was a potential career path. And, you know, the way that I basically describe it was market research was just journalism within an organization. At least that's what it felt like to me. You know, a lot of my core projects were going out talking to people, interviewing them, doing ethnographies. But the difference between when I was, you know, a journalist, if you will, is I really couldn't have an opinion when I was writing for the newspaper, right? Like I'm I'm reporting facts. This is what happened. This is maybe the impact, but it was very much fact-based versus in my market research experience, I got to collect the facts. I got to collect the information. I got to spend time with people, you know, build empathy with people, And then I got to go report those facts, but then I got to have an opinion about it. And it was that, that was the turning point for me. And I was like, wait, I get to have an opinion about this now. (laughs) I'm a little opinionated. And so I was like, this is, this is a crystal clear career path for me. I can use everything that I've learned in school at this Mm. point about, you know, connecting with people and helping people tell their stories, but use that to drive business. And it was such an unlocking for me, you know, in such a short amount of time that there was no question that this is like where I wanted to start my career. 
Oh my gosh, how amazing. And I, it's so fun even hearing this at this stage in your career, because I think so often it's such a great example of this transference of skills. And you said it's a well Mm -hmm. of like, there were differences, but there were so many things that you had already developed and honed and worked on that just lended themselves so beautifully to doing this market research. And then combining that with another one of your strengths was just having an opinion and like being able to convey that in a compelling way. Like, I think that is such a beautiful example of kind of seeing how skills translate and that they're not limited. You know, they don't, they don't get stuck in one singular context that they can be be applied in multiple domains. So that's really, oh, and like, I just, that feeling of being unlocked and kind of, I would imagine mm-hmm. that clarity probably felt really amazing after what was, you know, kind of a scary time coming, originally coming out of college and the plan kind of went out the yes. window. Yes. A hundred percent. Definitely. Yes. Oh my gosh. So then, so then this leads you to General Mills. It's funny whenever I look at somebody's profile, because a lot of times when I look at two is like, what sort of transitions occurred in their time there? And so, I mean, you've held mm-hmm. multiple roles over the course of seven and a half years. So I'd love to maybe tell us about your time. Like, where did you start at General Mills and kind of how did things evolve for you while you were there? So my time there was probably spent between two different groups mainly, which was the market research consumer insights team and then the design team. And so when I initially came to General Mills, you know, literally walking into the office in Minneapolis, I'm like, this is Disneyland for adults. I mean, (laughs) it was, (laughs) it was such a fun work experience. They take such good care of their employees. And I mean, literally you walk into the office and they have, you know, one of the characters from one of the cereal boxes, be it Lucky or be it the Tricks Rabbit standing there greeting you, handing out like free products. And, you know, there's always something going on. It really is such an amazing company. And it was such a fun and nurturing place to start Mm -hmm. my career. And so when I initially started, Mm -hmm. I had a few roles that were traditional consumer insights roles, you know, very focused on kids cereal or focused on our um, focus on the back of house business. So places where they're selling private label products. And so I did a ton of just like cross-functional, you know, working, working with Mm. the sales team, working with the marketing team, working with research and development, doing, um, again, just traditional consumer insights projects, be that working to redesign the product itself. And so my role in that was always to understand, you know, the consumer at the core of it. If we're thinking about changing a product, why are we changing it? Is it about cost management? Is it about product improvement? Is it because the consumer themselves are changing, right? Like we're talking Mm. about food and as we know how people (laughs) feel about food, the trends that go on. Yes, quite often, you know, companies might drive those, but often some, a lot of times consumers and influencers do, especially now. And Mm. so my role was always to be the voice of the consumer, which meant I always had to be in touch with consumers, which again, just kind of, again, made this feel more like working at Disneyland, if you will, especially when I worked on kids cereal, because I spent half of my time hanging. I go to their houses and sit with them and their parents and, you know, they'd show me their playroom and I'd have conversations about whatever they wanted to talk about, whatever they were interested in that moment. And then I had to translate 
how does that, you know, impact their serial choice? And how does that impact, you know, when I'm working with our advertising agency, how we're going to design this commercial? There's so much thought that goes into all of the different product design and product communications. Mm-hmm. And so the first half of my career was really just focused on being that voice of the consumer. And then a couple years in, I made the transition to the design team. And that was another unlock for me. General Mills has an internal design team. At the time, it was known as the iSquad Innovation Squad. And frankly, a lot of the ways of working are really based off IDEO and based off, you know, a lot of the core principles around design thinking that IDEO has created and really like put out into the world. And, you know, my first design project was to go to college campuses and basically understand how college students thought about food and work with operators for campuses to, you know, design, frankly, their cafeterias and what kind of offerings they had. And so again, I was still pretty young at that time. And so again, it was just really fun. Like go to a college (laughs) campus and hang out with college students. I'm like, I think that I can do this. And um, (laughs) and again, I just loved it so much because the core part of my job was just talking to people. It was just understanding people. And so, you know, year after year, I just continued to build skills around how you ask questions, you know, how you show genuine empathy for people. But the hardest piece of it is always translating it to people who weren't in the room. That is the hardest part for journalists. It's the hardest part for a researcher. You know, you might be the most empathetic person and the best listener, but then you have to, you know, synthesize all those voices, all those points of views and be able to communicate them to someone who, you know, is just using the information as a piece of input into a greater decision. And so Mm -hmm. I think that was probably like a big growth for me over my time at General Mills, because I was such a passionate person around, you know, the consumers that I felt like I was representing and I didn't want to let them down. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I go back and share to the greater cross-functional team, they all have their perspective that they're bringing in from their respective lens, right? The Mm R&D folks are you know, concerned about the different components and they're thinking about cost and, you know, the marketing people are thinking about budget. And so having to, you know, really learn how to work cross-functionally was probably one of the greatest things that I took away from that experience. And so I continued to work on the design team for quite a while. Really quick, out of curiosity, like, is there an example that comes to mind of a time where like, that scenario kind of unfolded where almost it was like potentially it felt like it was in conflict of what you were trying to do and what the the other teams internally were seeking to accomplish. Yes, I can. I can think of one because <laughs> it really <laughs> resonates in my mind. At some point, I actually moved abroad for General Mills and mm-hmm. I worked in London for a few years, but I worked all across Europe and Australia and so I was, I was sent to Australia for a project. General Mills had a kids organic brand that they really wanted to get into Australia. And so I went over there and I spent some time talking to consumers. And this particular brand was extremely innovative in the U.S. and was flying off the shelves. And it was a brand of the future, et cetera. When I went over to Australia, the consumers there were like, this is a brand of 10 or 15 years ago. This is a baseline for product entry for kids. This isn't enough to be a differentiator. It's definitely not enough to be at a premium price point. I heard that like loud and clear. And so then I go back to, you know, headquarters with that great news. <laughs> and I was, I was pretty junior at that point, to be honest. I think I was just a manager 
And I actually went head to head with the president of the Europe office because he was like, no, this is a great brand. It does so well in the US. I think there's something there. And I was like, you're right. It is in the U.S., but we're in a different market. It's a different country. It's a different consumer. And it was probably the most, honestly, tense experience that I've ever had in my career. You know, he was totally respectful, but also it was a big bet that, you know, the company wanted to make. And I essentially was coming back with this news of this isn't the right bet to make. This isn't the right product to make. It's going to fall flat. So that wasn't really fun. And, you know, eventually, for the most part, I was able to scale back the launch that they were trying to do. They really wanted to go in hard with the full portfolio. And I was able to scale them back to just do some piloting and testing with one product, which not surprisingly kind of just did average. And so that was that experience. And I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really interesting because it's the the behavior. It's such a great, not on your end, but more so on the the leadership team's end of like escalation of commitment where you mm. kind of decide something that you want to do. And then despite receiving, you know, negative feedback and inputs that are counter to the action you're taking or want to take, you ignore them and continue down the path because it's what you decide to do. And I think it's a great example of the danger of coming to a conclusion before gathering the data mm. versus go gather the data and then make the decision. So yes. that's really interesting. So scaled it back. And then once the pilots were average feedback, did they end up pushing it or did they back off once the testing was not where they expected? They backed off and moved to another market. And I think, you know, one of the things that was unique in that situation as well is the team that I was on at that time was an experiential team. And so typically before the product life cycle at General Mills from like product development to something on shelf was like two to three years. And so they had decided that's way too long. Like, how do we speed this up? And this is really where design thinking and iteration and prototyping comes into play. So I was put on this team that was, you know, here, frankly, to accelerate innovation. And so I came back very quickly with like, hey, that's a no-go versus, you know, they were quite used to doing a lot of different type of testing to kind of justify the development pipeline. And so I think that was like one of the very early examples from our new team of showing them we don't need to spend two to three years to put this product on shelf to find out two to three years from now, it's mm. irrelevant. We're telling you six weeks after you all came up with the idea to put this in the pipeline. And so while in the moment it was super kind of like tense having that conversation, it actually ended up being a justification for our team to exist and for the type of prototyping and piloting that we were doing to continue. That's incredible. Okay. So I got to ask, cause it's running through my mind. So I have sat in a room in a more junior role, either going head to head, or I will admit not going head to head with someone senior and knowing information and being terrified to speak up for the consequences. And so I'm very curious what, if anything, gave you the courage, helped you kind of stand your ground because it was it was worthwhile and to your point it really helped justify your team and showed the tremendous value that your you and your team could bring but I would imagine in the moment that dynamic 
being a female, being in a right, like mm-hmm. there are a lot of things going on beyond just having a dialogue with somebody where you're having a disagreement. <laughs> There's a lot more 100%. at play. What enabled you to have either the courage or the confidence to speak up and hold your ground? It's a great question. And it's definitely something that has been learned over my career. I definitely did not start off that, you know, committed, if you will, to even holding my ground, like Mm -hmm. being a woman, being a black woman, starting my career very, very young and going into the organization, like as a millennial, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of my early meetings, they were talking about the millennials and designing for the millennials. And I'm sitting in the room, like, I hope no one knows, like I'm one of those, you know? (laughs) Um, And so honestly, when I initially started working, I certainly wasn't standing my ground or going head to head with people. I would actually often look for cues from other leaders that it was okay for me, frankly, to be really authentic in those spaces and be really honest if I had a difference of opinions. And so younger in my career, it really was actually the other people around me that I waited for them to set the context. Mm -hmm. Um, But then once I started taking small risks, if you can, and like disagreeing when I thought it was appropriate based off, you know, my scope of work, and I started getting rewarded, you know, for that and realizing that, wait, I'm here for a reason. You know, I have a different opinion because I have a different lived experience. And if I don't bring that into the room now, what's going to happen is we're going to go down this path and then it might, you know, it might surface later and or the product won't do well. And I would have had that intuition the entire time. And so I went from kind of like, frankly, trying to shrink in spaces because I was different or my lived experience was different to me actually sitting in spaces and saying, what about my lived experiences or my differences actually can add value to this space and add value to this conversation? And that made a huge difference for me from the way that I was thinking. You know, in that particular instance with the president, when I was going head to head with him, <laughs> I remember, you know, I, I won't lie, I think it was a bit, there was a little immaturity, frankly, and how maybe even confident I was or forward I was in pushing the consumer voice in that conversation because. I don't know what was in my coffee cup that morning, but I remember saying to him almost verbatim, you know, I sit in this grocery store for 300 hours and talk to 500 people. How long did you stand in it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I don't necessarily recommend that. However, I think that <laughs> I think that I could have presented that same information, maybe a little gentler, you know, hey, you know, this is how many conversations we had. But I think I had gotten to the pinnacle of like, sir, you all flew me all the way to Australia. You had me do all of this work, talk to all of these people, like, you know, at least like, you know, listen and try to internalize like what I'm saying. And he actually, after that, conversation. I mean, it was so tense and there were a dozen other people in the room and everyone else, my manager, my manager's manager included, like they, they had let me stand on my own at that point. Like they were like, we're not getting into this. And he afterwards was such a huge fan of mine and actually always asked me what I was thinking and kept up with me in my career at General Mills. And it's just really surprising how it turned out in the end. Yeah. You know, I think And you can tell me if you agree with this or disagree. I I think this is such a good reminder of like, you know, you can take those, take those risks, small risks, test it out. And like, right, like you were saying, like you were rewarded when you were taking small risk and yeah, this maybe could have come out, but like, 
your passion won out, right? And you were you were grounded in facts. Like it, you can't argue mm-hmm. with the, right the facts. And in this case, the president had the the wisdom and I think probably the confidence to say she's right, and to kind of put his ego aside. And to me, like for anyone listening, where it has gone the other way, it is not necessarily something wrong with you. Right? I think that's the other piece, right? right? Like that. In this case, like thankfully, there is leadership in place that was encouraging of that, and it actually was a it was a turning point in your relationship with that person. It earned mm-hmm. respect with that individual, and that kind of seeking and seeking environments in which that that strength in your personality is encouraged. To your point, because you bring unique experiences, you bring a unique lens. You you were hired for that perspective, and so if it's not embraced if it's not allowed to have a voice then that is not a you problem it may just be an alignment or an environment problem definitely I love hearing stories like that too because I think you know too many times we hear the ugly story and I think this is a really Mm -hmm. great example where like it's scary and you put yourself out there and even like your boss and your boss's boss are like okay well you made your bed and you're gonna like (laughs) yes but it right it, like you took a risk and it and it paid off and it was and because the the purpose the the goal was at the end of the day what was best for the company it wasn't about you it yeah. was about the company so yes i love that okay so you mentioned that you moved over to i squad mm-hmm. and like this was more on the design team how did the train how did you end up making this transition from doing more market research into moving over to the design team It was another kind of just lucky experience in the sense that the design team at General Mills acted at the time like as a consultancy. So the core divisions could hire the I-Squad, if you will, to do work for them. And so I was working for the convenience store team and they hired the I-Squad to do the project, um, actually the project about college students. It was the first time that I learned about the I-Squad. It was the first time that I did a design project. And immediately I put it on, you know, my career development plan that I really wanted to be on that team Um, because I saw design as, again, just another iteration of transferring my skills around consumer research and around empathy and around translating insights to action. I'm like, you know, it just, it just keeps getting better. It goes from just collecting the facts and then it goes from collecting them to have an opinion. And then it goes from, you know, having an opinion to exploring white space opportunities and developing new products, not just like, you know, iterating on them a little bit. And so I put it on my career development plan. I honestly talked anyone's ear off internally who would listen. And at some point someone left, it was a really small team. Someone left and I had the opportunity to interview to be on the team. And it was such an amazing experience. I mean, small team, maybe six people. It was me and five guys (laughs) um, for most of my time on that team. And because that team was General Mills's only design team. They were based, or we were based in Minneapolis, but we worked for General Mills all over the world. So I had the opportunity through that team to go do work in Brazil and China, again, in Europe and Canada. And again, young in my experience, pre-family, 
anytime a project would come up, they're like, all right, we need someone who can go to Shanghai for two weeks and everyone else would kind of look to the side. And I'm like me, available, happy to go. And so I got to travel so much. And again, just like extend my curiosity for people. And honestly, the, studying the overlap of people and food is such a special place because food is just connected to so much around how we show love, how we communicate, how we nurture, how we feel about ourselves, how we heal ourselves. And then at some point I was like, all right, guys, you keep sending me away for a few weeks here and there. Like, what if we really take the plunge? And it happened to line up with General Mills wanting to extend the capabilities of design beyond just Minneapolis. And so that's what took me to London initially. Okay. So I sat back and I didn't call you out on it, but you use the L word, which is the one word I don't allow on this podcast. And that's lucky. Oh, okay. I was like, what did I, I'm going, I went through all the L words. I'm like, I think I said like, love. <laughs> so it's interesting because you said you were really lucky that you got this opportunity. And then I, as I just listened to you explain how you got it, there was no luck involved. It mm. was, you worked with the consultancy, you recognize a huge interest, you made a point to not only put in your career development plan, but then talk to, in your words, any and everyone about whatever you could so that when the opportunity presented itself, you were yes. an obvious candidate to interview for it, which is yes. amazing. You're right. It was a hundred percent, a lot of intentional hard work and networking to get on that team because it, it was a highly competitive space and opportunity so you're right. It was definitely more than luck. Yeah. I mean, you articulated all the things that if I had pushed you and said, if, if you gave me my answer already, but I, I, I tend to like to call that out because it's really interesting. I had one yeah. guest Tom previously and she didn't even realize like it was like language that she didn't even, wasn't even conscious that she used. And now she hears yes. it a lot more when she's talking, especially like I've noticed with women, we, we tend to do that when it comes to our accomplishments and we we're not intentionally robbing ourselves of claiming what we've done, but in a way we are. And so I just, I like to make sure that that doesn't happen here. <laughs> I love that. I love that because you're right. There are a lot of things in communication that women do that are different than men that can be perceived differently. And, or, you know, to your point where we might not often be as frankly, uh, accrediting ourselves to our accomplishments. So I appreciate that you do that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I just, you moved to London. I mean, this is just like, you're doing this amazing work. What ends up taking you away? What ends up prompting you to, to make a transition? I went to London for three years with General Mills. And again, it was to extend the design capabilities to the European and Australian market. And so I really went over there in teaching mode. And it was awesome the first couple of years. And then honestly, I looked up Margaret at some point and I just kind of felt like I was too young in my career to be teaching. I would like kind of selfishly, I wanted to still be in learning mode. I think I mentioned earlier, like I kind of think of work and career as applied learning. And I felt yeah. like I was kind of doing a lot of the same, very interesting, but very repetitive work. And I wanted to, um, I just wanted to go broader. I wanted to go broader, mm -hmm. both in terms of like, I don't want to be solely in the teaching, you know, position, if you will. And then two, I want it to go broader than food. I'm really passionate about food, mm -hmm. but I also got to that point that, you know, there's a point you get to, especially in CPG where it's like, okay, you're, you're doing uh, consumer packaged goods. Forgive me. <laughs> you're kind of like, you're, you're either like 
doing this for the rest of your career. And there's those, those folks that work at, you know, General Mills and P&G for 30 years and have amazing careers and certainly amazing retirement packages. Um, and, and then there are those who, who pivot at some point. And I wasn't certain that food was the only lane that I wanted to be in. I've always just been a deeply curious person. And so yeah. it just got to a point where there wasn't necessarily, you know, anything about Mills itself, other than, you know, their lane is food. Although they, of course they bought the pet company right after I left. <laughs> um, <laughs> but other than that, it was just this curiosity of wanting to learn more. And honestly, I had also like increasingly fallen in love with design and what design could unlock. And again, when I started on the iSquad, I learned really quickly that IDEO was, you know, best in class for design. And, you know, IDEO invented all these different methodologies. And so that was kind of on my vision board, you know, for a couple of years of, you know, if I'm going to go do design somewhere, I want to go do it at IDEO. I appreciate too, like the timestamps for us so that we get a glimpse into like when there's awareness and then there's a period of time of like, I think it's really powerful of you getting exposed to new concepts, new ideas. And like, it's this pattern that's been happening of like undergrad, you went to journalism and then going to Wake Forest where pulling in liberal arts majors into the business world, right. And getting exposed to that even being a thing and realizing how much you love it then going to General Mills, getting exposed to iSquad when they were consulting with your group, realizing how much you wanted that, right? And working towards it. And then coming into iSquad, finding IDEO, loving design, and then kind of having that on your vision board. Like I just, I think it's really powerful reminder that like exposing ourselves to new things can open our eyes to what's possible. Like we do, sometimes we forget like the bubble that we're in and that yes. when we get out and we we, we see new things, then we can, we kind of learn what we're interested in and that that can change and evolve. And then, and then the patience too, of mm-hmm. knowing where you want to go, even if you don't know how you're going to get there yet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I always find it interesting because when you tell it back, it sounds like it was, it sounds like, oh, that all makes sense. But I feel like the dots always make sense when you connect them backward along yeah. the way. I, you know, it's so hard to see past, you know, the thing that's right in front of you. So I also like always tell people to keep that in mind. I had one of my previous bosses, Sandy Spiker, she would always say to me, like, you know, don't worry about, you know, the end game. Just, just think about what you want to learn next. When we're thinking about your next role, what are you interested in right now? What do you want to learn next? And so that's one thing that I hold on to. And I like to share. Yes. Yes. The best next step. And that's really, again, right. In the spirit of not having control, (laughs) right. Like worrying about how, and and I think sometimes talking to some of the emotions you described earlier too, it's like that really keeps the overwhelm at bay. Cause if you, if we look Mm -hmm. at, I mean, so many of us, we have these big ambitions written on our hearts. And when we think about the impact we want to have or the work we want to do or organization we want to be a part of, it can feel overwhelming to even begin to think how we're going to make that real. And then anchoring to what's one thing you can do today, this week that moves you forward trusting, right. Trusting that the dots will connect, trusting that as you gather information and you make the best next steps, you will, right. You'll head in the direction that you're aiming and that you will ultimately get where you're meant to be. I love that. And that's, I mean, how cool that that was guidance that was given to you. That's so powerful. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you were aware of IDEO. They were on the vision board of where you wanted to go. Did you pursue them or did they find you? 
I initially pursued them. So IDEO has an office in London. I was already in London. I was absolutely loving living in London. <laughs> you know, definitely homesick, but but still really enjoying the experience. And so yeah. I initially actually interviewed for a position in the London office. I didn't get it. And of course, was heartbroken, devastated, mm-hmm. all the things. And then probably about six months later, the Chicago office reached out to me and said, you know, hey, we have a, a position here that we think, you know, you'd be great for. And mm-hmm. simultaneously in that six month period, I actually had started thinking about moving back to the US um, because I was not necessarily getting homesick, but kind of getting sad, if you will, around missing so many different important life events for family and friends. You know, living abroad is one of the most fulfilling and unique experiences that you can have. But frankly, sometimes it can be, you know, I don't want to say selfish because we all deserve that. I think everyone should do it. But you end up just like missing so much life that's happening to people that, you know, are really core to you. And I was missing so much life. And so I was just coming around the idea of, okay, am I going back to Minneapolis with General Mills? You know, do I need to pivot somewhere else? And then when they reached out and said Chicago office, my dad's from Chicago, my great aunt, my late great aunt, who is my, was my best friend, lived there. It was kind of just like perfect pieces, all the dream coming together. And so that's how I found my way to IDEO. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so you come in to be a senior business designer at IDEO at the Chicago office. So yes. what does a day in the life look like for you now? Well, my first project actually was going to Disney World. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yes, finally. Uh, a day in the life of a business designer or really any designer on um, a, t- a traditional project team is was quite actually the opposite of a day in the life for me at General Mills. So General Mills, I'm an individual, just, I'm just an individual. I'm, I'm spending half my time maybe in meetings, but I'm spending half if not more of my time at my desk, you know, working, planning, strategizing, et cetera. IDEO, it is a very, you know, all in, all consuming focus on one thing that is really a core part of design. And so a day in the life is you're on one client at a time with one project focused on, you know, solving one problem or coming up with one solution. And it's still highly cross-functional. So my first project, I was working with an architect, I was working with a visual communicator, and I was working with um, an interactive designer. And, you know, we were working on, ironically, (laughs) again, food, but nonetheless, the the intersection of food and senior citizens. And so, you know, I I mentioned lighthearted that we went to Disney World, but we went there for innovation, you know, thinking about the role of innovation and surveying seniors and getting that from Disney World, which is, of course, a really unique experience. And so I did that role for about a year and a half, just working on different client projects and touched everything from financial products to health healthcare products, um, again, more food products. It was a really broad range. And what was nice is, you know, my typically my General Mills experience was really focused on a lot of different things related to food and a and a broad set of skills applied, if you will, versus mm-hmm. IDEO, it was, you know, working on a lot of different industries and a lot of different clients, but really a bit more narrowly focused on a lot of the same skills around, you know, empathy and synthesis and prototyping and designing. And so I did that for about a year and a half. And then 
got a new CEO and <laughs> she asked me to interview to be her chief of staff. Definitely not traditional, I would say. So in addition to kind of just, you know, the work being very different at IDEO, the, the culture and the working environment was very different as well. And so I am a, you know, a self-professed introvert. And so when I first came to IDEO, I actually really struggled because it was an always on culture and it was an extremely extroverted culture. Like I mentioned at General Mills, I had a desk, it had little walls up. <laughs> when I came to work at IDEO, there was like an office and it's like, here's your desk inside this office with all of these other people. And there's an expectation that you're talking to them all day long for eight hours because IDEO really believes in, you know, creativity coming from those spontaneous moments and people working together and on top of each other, which is a lot of the magic of the sauce. But for someone like me who, you know, who's super introspective, again, a writer, a reflector, it was frankly like pure torture. <laughs> and I was just really struggling to get my work done, to feel like I was having an impact and, and honestly, not to just be exhausted. I spent all weekend just like sleeping or when I go home, I couldn't talk to anyone else because I was completely talked out for the day. I just like wanted to be alone. And so I end up starting this club at IDEO called Introverts Anonymous. And um, <laughs> it was a support group for introverts. And, you know, initially I thought it was maybe a handful of people might be interested in this conversation. But when I first introduced it, because IDEO is a very, you know, anyone can start anything. It's a very just kind of like, you know, open space in that way, if you will. When I first raised my hand and said, hey, I want to have this conversation around introversion. Have people heard of this? Does anyone else relate? Half of the studio raised their hands. And so it really took off and became this huge thing that changed a lot of the ways that we worked, it changed the way some of the leaders communicated. It changed expectations on projects. We introduced things like heads down time, which is like, okay, there are now silent hours in the project space. And actually now we travel for work. We're not meeting as a team to have dinner every single night. You know, it is project manager, like pick a night that people have dinner by themselves or they do something, you know, that's a bit more solo. And then like most things, the extroverts end up like appreciating this time as well. Mm -hmm. And so I had started that. And then I had also carried over at General Mills. I started Courageous Conversations with a few other colleagues at General Mills. And so then I also brought that to IDEO. And so I actually met the new CEO. She came, she was based in San Francisco. She came to the Chicago office and I was hosting a courageous conversation around race in the workplace. And her and I just like connected really deeply through that conversation. But um, similar to how you and I first met, you know, she saw me presenting and saw me facilitating and holding that space. And she knew from the very beginning of her platform that she wanted inclusion to be a core part of her leadership. And so, you know, she had that little experience with me and then she went to our Cambridge office and they started their own little version of Introverts Anonymous and the Courageous Conversations. <laughs> and when she asked them about it, they're like, oh, that's Lauren, like go talk to Lauren. And so those two experiences put a bug in her head of, you know, this is someone who I might want on my team and might want to work with. That's amazing. And I think so, so many times, like this is such a great example of there's the job that you're hired to do. 
and that you do well. And then there's the things that light you up or bring you passion, or maybe are just out of necessity to make this environment work for you that you're doing on the side. And that's sometimes that those are the things that can lead to more opportunities, you know, and they don't, it doesn't have to be this you know, this fundamental shift, it's a way to like test and, you know, prototype and in some ways applying design principles to this, this behavior. And so I think that's so amazing. And it's interesting. I go back and forth if I'm introvert or extrovert, but I think about if you took me (laughs) in an environment out of the ability to connect and talk to people and all day I had Mm -hmm. to be alone in isolation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is taxing. I mean, I really Mm -hmm. admire the fact that you, found ways to cope and persevere because that is that is very hard to go against to go against your nature in that way and to to operate an environment that really taxes your energy even though the work is something you love the environment is is draining and so how incredible though that the thing yeah. that you know that you put in place and and some of these things that you were passionate about really fueled the next move in your career and led you to being chief of staff People talk about the chief of staff a lot. And will you do me a favor and tell everyone again, right? Kind of a day in the life. Like what were you responsible for in this role? And what did you focus on? I was in the role for almost four years, I think. And it definitely changed across that experience, especially because three months and three or four months into it, COVID started. And so, you know, in the traditional sense, chief of staff, is typically someone who is like the right-hand person of the CEO. And you're doing a few things. One, you're acting as a senior advisor. So you're kind of their eyes and ears and spaces they can't be in. And that's to make them more effective and more impactful, right? Like the CEO's time is extremely precious. And so a huge piece of my role was attending meetings or conversations that the CEO couldn't be in and representing her voice, or at least, you know, taking back what was happening in that meeting or conversation to be able to more efficiently get her voice. You know, I might send an hour conversation with a group of senior leaders and digest it to her in five minutes and get her 30 second response versus us taking an hour of her time. And then uh, aligned with the effectiveness, it's just preparing her to be successful. So that could look like anything from if she has to go talk to a team internally and or has to go meet with another CEO externally, what's all the high level research that I could potentially do to, again, give her a little cheat sheet for that conversation because it is such a a high-touch moment in such a limited time. And it's really, you know, CEO is such a big job. And the chief of staff is kind of just like taking a piece of that job to try to accelerate and, again, make her more effective. And then, frankly, one of the, you know, maybe things people don't talk about as much, but from my experience, your role of chief of staff is also to make the rest of the executive team feel really confident in the CEO and make them feel like, you know, the CEO has full awareness as to what they're working on because everyone in an organization rightfully so thinks that what they're working on is the most important thing. And that's true. It is for them. That is the CFO. What you're working is the most important thing for you. CEO, same thing. But they also think that it's that's the most important thing for the CEO. And your job as chief of staff is to actually encourage that and, you know, give them your time and give them your collaboration so they feel that way because people feel if they have access to you, if they have your ear, they also have the ear of the CEO. Mm. And it's not that all those pieces aren't important. It's just more that, you know, someone has to help the CEO prioritize where they're spending their time so that, 
truly the most important thing in the organization is getting focused on. So those are the core pieces of it. And then frankly, one of my favorite pieces of the chief of staff role, which again, in the moment, it probably feels a bit overwhelming is, is problem solving. And mm-hmm. so I like to say, you know, true issues that make it to the CEO or issues that cannot be solved clearly somewhere else in the organization. This isn't a clear finance problem. This isn't a clear marketing problem. This isn't a clear people problem. It's probably a mix of some of those things, but it's not clear, you know, what senior leader or what group, if you will, should take this on. And so then it becomes the CEO's problem. Anything that's the CEO's problem is the chief of staff's problem. And so there's a lot of unique problem solving that happens um, as chief of staff, a lot of creativity that has to happen. And sometimes, you know, a lot of spinning things off, if you will. You know, the first year of my job was filling the gaps in the organization. We would identify something that needed to be focused on, needed to be prioritized. You know, some things more fun than other. For example, COVID was one of those things. Like every single other organization, when COVID, you know, really came to fruition and took over for the organization, it's like, okay, great. Who's responsible for writing our employee policy? Who's going to look into what this means from a legal standpoint? Who's going to decide if we're closing offices? Every single big question that came up, that fell on my desk. And I had to coordinate and lead all of these different players to create everything imaginable from scratch under extreme stress and emotional you know, duress that we were all going through at that time. And although it was a really challenging time, it really was the foundation of my leadership at IDEO because it allowed me to um, really be in a subservient role and help so many people and build so many relationships. I mean, I really was, you know, helping all of the leaders manage through this really tough time and also helping them align in a way that they had never aligned before because there were seven or eight offices around the globe at that time. And previously where everything was a bit like everyone do your own thing, adjust for your market. This was like, we all have to address, you know, the offices. We all have to address employees' mental health. We all have to address how our clients are feeling about being in person or not being in person. And so I really played a very heavy key facilitator role in managing those conversations and hearing everyone and getting them to hear each other. And so that carried out throughout the chief of staff experience. Wow, really calling on so many of your skill sets of empathy and asking great questions and sitting in ambiguity and oh my gosh. And I mean, having lived in an organization during probably the peak of uncertainty and and knowing how many things and how rapidly they were coming at you that you had to account for. Mm-hmm talk through rapidly making huge decisions that normally you would give yourself months to make. You've got days or weeks at the most. I mean, that is, that is so much and that you were really at the forefront of managing all of that. I mean, that's really kind of a once in a lifetime experience that you just were like in that role at this moment in time. And we're, we're shepherding, you know, this organization through that. That's incredibly, that's just incredible. And it I'm was, sure- uh, yes, yeah. it was very intense, very emotional in the end, very rewarding. It's probably the, you know, the fastest I've grown and learned in my career, you know, despite it being such, you know, a negative backdrop as to what was going on. And then just a few months later, when George Floyd was murdered, it was kind of just like the next chapter, next iteration of it. Because IDEO didn't have, you know, a head of DEI 
didn't have a DEI department. And so again, this is this is a gap in the organization. So this is not the CEO's responsibility. It's now my responsibility. And luckily I had already you know, shown some interest here, shown some passion here, done a lot of work here, not officially a part of my job, but had the credibility, had the relationships to step into that really firmly. But it was just another chapter of unlocking and building to help support the organization. Yeah. And then that ultimately would be kind of the stepping stone into the global chief impact officer. So it's really Yeah, you kind of saying yes, taking things on, kind of stretching beyond your role that really, in many ways, an IDEO or even a general mills like led to led to these next roles of where where you are going next. That's really remarkable. Oh, my gosh. Lauren, I just looked at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Do we get four hours with you? I think that's the allotted time. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This has been such a treasure of a conversation to just hear you sharing your incredible journey, this process that you've gone through, how you show up in spaces. I love even just listening to the way you communicate about what you do. And again, I called you out on lucky, but really the way you communicate largely is with confidence and kind of conviction in who you are and what you've done and owning that. And I really admire that because that's a skill in and of itself to be able to, to communicate in that way and to share with those of us who have not operated in these spaces or are not as familiar with, you know, these roles or in these environments, like really getting a good sense for what it was that you did and connecting to pieces of your story. I really, I really appreciate that. When I wrap these up, which are, is always so hard to do. I love to ask, and you've already given us some of these, if there was something that as you've gone along your journey, either that it can be advice maybe somebody has shared with you that has served you really well or something that you've just learned through your journey that if you want people listening to take this one thing away, no matter what, what would you want that to be? I would say have your own board of directors. I appreciate the reflection around me communicating with confidence and conviction And a lot of that comes from me working through vulnerability and humility. Mm -hmm. I think one of the hardest things to do as a leader is to, frankly, take advice and feedback and not forget that just because you have a big title or you're senior, that you still have room to grow. And so one of the things that I have done throughout my career, regardless of how senior I have become, is continue to ask for feedback. How am I showing up? How did you receive that? And that you have to ask for it the more senior you get. You can't just, you know, say, you can't just assume it's going to happen. And you can't even just say like, oh, I'm one of those leaders that, you know, is happy to get feedback. Come to me anytime. No, you have to put the rituals in place, invite people and create a psychologically safe space where they can actually truly do that. It's hard, hard, hard when you're more senior in an organization because often the feedback you're getting is, man, you probably did something in front of a lot of people or a big, you know, something at scale. And it's like, oh, but then now you know not to do it again. So, you know, the the key takeaway is ask for advice, 
no matter how authentic, inclusive you become as a leader and confident you are, know that there's always room to grow, especially because the folks who are working for you, that group is changing constantly. That dynamic is changing constantly. The culture is changing constantly. And there's context happening externally that is impacting people's day-to-day work experiences. And you need to be aware of that. You might be too far away from it the more senior you get the rooms that you're sitting in to realize how people are experiencing you as a leader. So that's my little advice. I love that. I think that's so great. And I, it is, it's so easy to forget the power dynamic of just how that plays out. And and I mean, I think, right, the roles reversing, right, where it's like before it was you as a young kind of early manager talking to this president of Europe, right. And then kind of returning that and creating space to let people challenge, give you feedback. And and again, to your point, psychologically safe space for people to do that. And it's yes. ritualistic, right? It has to be. And the way you respond is so important. I, I love that feedback. And I think that's so valuable. And I just, I really, I'm so excited to follow along. And as someone who you are clearly a life learner, I am so excited as you have this time to reflect and really think about what next looks like. I'm just so excited to see where you decide to give your gifts and your talents next. Thank you, Margaret. I really appreciate the invitation to the conversation and um, love listening to the podcast and can't wait to also see um, how you continue to bring women together and lift up these voices and make these connections. So thank you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoyed that bonus time with Lauren. I could have gone on so much longer and thoroughly enjoyed hearing her remarkable journey and learning so many tidbits along the way about how to navigate ambiguity, how to remind yourself that you have a voice and a perspective that needs to be honored and represented, and also recognizing when it's time to move on. I know that you likely are as inspired as I have been by Lauren. If this is true, please take a moment, reach out, send her a note on LinkedIn, connect with her and just share the impact her story has had on you. I want to say a big thank you to Josh Reedford for his editing each and every week. And as always, I want to say a big thank you to this amazing community for showing up, for investing in yourself and committing to being the best version of you. Until next week, y'all, keep rising.